this series, Walking with Christ When Faith is Tested, because we're going to talk a lot about testing here. And so, have that out. You can open your Bibles to 1 John. It's all the way in the back, just before Revelation. And uh, we'll start at chapter 1, verse 1, a good place to start. You want to have that to follow along. 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Sort of the prologue or the beginning to the book. This is some of the most difficult Greek in all of the New Testament. And uh, some of your versions may actually be somewhat different. It's very hard to translate. First John. First John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for these letters from the Apostle John to the church. We pray that we may learn from them, that they may radically affect our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this is the first sermon in this series on the epistles or the letters of John. I just finished preaching through the Gospel of John a month ago, where you heard very attentively 79 sermons over 20 months. And I started that series and ended it by pointing out some key things I thought we needed to learn from the Apostle John. We must know why the church is a community and then be a community. And we must know why Christians are loving and then be loving people. And we must know why Christianity is believable and then act like we really do believe it. And we must know why Jesus Christ is not only the most meaningful person who ever lived, we must know why he brings meaning to each of our lives, and we must know why it is Jesus Christ who lives and reigns and is coming again. And we must be able to tell others in a way that they can understand. And that was the purpose of the Gospel of John. We saw that John 20, verses 30, 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Strangely enough, those are also some of the key themes in the epistles of John. Excuse me, I'm going to have the wind blowing on my back. It's very distracting. But 
While they have some of the same theme, there are very key differences between the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. The Gospel of John is written to the world. One of the last books written about Jesus. The Epistles of John are written to the church. It's a key difference. The Apostle John is based in Ephesus at this time. And uh, it's most likely this letter was written to the churches in Asia Minor, what we would call Western Turkey today, as much as the book of Revelation was. Essentially has the same audience that Revelation does. The gospel is written for unbelievers to arouse faith in them, where the epistle is written for believers to deepen their assurance of faith. John's purpose for readers of his gospel was that through faith they might receive life. His purpose for readers of his epistle is they might know that they already have life. The gospel contains signs to induce faith. Remember, there were seven major miracles in the gospel of John to bring about faith. And so these are written so that you might believe. The epistles contain tests. Test by which to judge the faith that you do or do not have. The enemies of the truth in the gospel are, by and large, unbelieving Jews who doubt. Not the historicity of Jesus, was he a real person, because they could see and hear him. We're now writing 60 years later, and they were doubting that he was the uh, Christ, the Son of God, Um, But now, the enemies of the truth in the epistles are professing Christians. Although the tests given here show that they're lying. And their theology of Jesus is distinctly docetic and Gnostic in nature. We're going to talk about that. I've put those in your outline Because you have to understand why John's writing. Deceticism is an opinion that Jesus had no real human body, that he was divine and he only appeared to be human, he only seemed human, and he only appeared to have died on the cross. Deceticists didn't deny the divinity of Christ, but they did deny the humanity of Jesus. They said he was fully God, but he wasn't fully man. Sort of wrecks the atonement and the need for the crucifixion. Jesus isn't fully man. His death doesn't do it for us. So it's a really big deal. And they're saying, nope, he wasn't man. He was just God. Gnosticism is the beliefs of these early Christian cults that valued special revealed knowledge of God as a means to attain Redemption for the spiritual element in man, separating it from the physical element. So they believed the body just went away. It was of no value. The only thing important was the soul. They also believed that they had special revealed knowledge of God that not everybody else had. Made them better. If you didn't get the special revealed knowledge, you know, you're a second-class believer. 
So it is these two things that have come up that John is dealing with throughout his letters. We're going to see him over and over again addressing these people. And the purpose of 1 John is to expose those people who merely profess their faith in Christ. But they're actually non-believers. And it is to confirm the true possessors of Christ by faith. So one group professes faith in Christ. The other group possesses Christ by faith. And he determines which is which by means of applying certain tests of life. And it's done with a view to granting uh, assurance of eternal life to true Christians. We read that purpose in 1 John five thirteen. Uh, John, like the gospel boys, puts the purpose at the end. And uh, so I've got to go all the way to chapter 5. I write these things to you who believe, those of you who already believe, in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. However, the problem that existed in the church was people couldn't tell who was who. Who were the real Christians? Who are the professors? Who are the possessors? I don't know. And there's false teachers there. And they claim to believe in Christ, but they refuse to live like it. And the young Christians in the church are confused. False teaching always leads to false living. And the ethical implications of Gnosticism are John's concern throughout these letters. And here, the false teachers are claiming to have attained moral perfection through their superior enlightenment because they have special revealed knowledge of God. They claim that they no longer sinned, but obviously they still did sin. And so people were confused. They're saying, we don't sin. They say, you know what? It sure looks like sin. But it's not sin for us because we have the special revealed knowledge of God. So sorry you don't. It's still sin for you. Too bad. So sad. You know, but it's okay. And people are saying, how come it's not sin for them, but it's sin for us? I don't understand. And it's really confusing the church. And it led these false teachers into an arrogant superiority. They despised the ordinary Christians. They said they remain ignorant and in darkness. And it led them to uh, an attitude to separate themselves out as a moral and spiritual elite. You didn't get the special revealed knowledge of God like we did. Sorry, you don't get to be in the club. And these false Teacher's theological error consisted in denying that Jesus is the Christ. John deals with that in chapters 2 and 5. They deny he was the Son of God. John deals with that in chapters 2 and 4. And they deny that he had come in the flesh. And John deals with that in chapter 4. Their attack is on the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus as man in the flesh, fully human. Now their ethical error has two ingredients. First is a lack of obedience to the commands of Christ that border on outright decadence. 
But they're saying, but it's okay for us because we got that special revealed knowledge. Doesn't count as sin. Still counts as sin for you, but not for me. Their second problem is an absence of love and compassion. Rather than loving those other people, they're lording it over them that we got the special knowledge, you don't. You're not as good as us. And there's a real lack of love and a lack of compassion. And of course, John exposes both of these. He exposes their unrighteous lifestyle. 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And he exposes their unloving attitudes in 1 John 2, 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. So there's a concern here between the disconnect between a profession and their practice. And so the Apostle John is stepping in to this mess. Remember, John's the last living apostle. All the others are gone. He's the only one left. He's very old. He's constantly referred to as the elder And he refers to uh, people in his churches as my beloved children. John R.W. Stott says, John gives them three primary tests to expose false teachers who profess Christ but don't possess Christ. And he says, we can conclude then that against the Christological heresy that Jesus wasn't fully man... Uh, The moral indifference and the arrogant lovelessness of Gnosticism, John lays his emphasis on three marks of authentic Christianity. Belief in Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh. That's the doctrinal test, the first test. We're going to see these throughout the book. Second, obedience to the commandments of God. The holiness test. I didn't call it the moral test. That's for you, Rich. You know, it's the holiness test. And then finally, brotherly love. Do you actually love these other people? The social test. Now, when we get new ministers come before our presbytery to be examined to take a church, we ask them all the doctrinal stuff. And uh, we ask them a lot of the holiness kinds of questions. And I've gotten in the habit uh, many times of raising my hand and say, you're going to this church, it's full of sinners. Are you actually going to love those people? Most of them are like, "Uh, yeah, hope so. (laughs) You know, because I think that's the hardest test. And so what John is telling them and us is that the way to tell if someone is a false teacher is by looking at his life and teaching. Is he a man of faith? Is he a man of holiness? Is he a man of love? And if he is, then you can trust his teaching. But if he's not, John has some of the harshest words in the New Testament for these people. And we'll see that. He says those who fail these three tests are described as children of the devil, 
chapter 3, verse 10, not from God, 4, 3, of the spirit of error, 4, 6, not having the truth in them, 1, 8, not having his word in them, 1, 10, not having the love of the Father in them, 2, 15, not really of us, 2, 19, not having the love of God abiding in them, 3, 17, not able to love God whom they have not seen, 420. In darkness until now, 29. Not having seen or know him, 36. Abiding in death, 314. And not from God, 46. All of which accurately describes an unbeliever who's pretending to be a believer. Those are some hard words. I thought, John, you know, in the gospel, the apostle of love, nice guy, you know, leaned against Jesus. We really liked him. Now we got the real guy. You know. It's tough. How'd you like to get a letter saying, you're abiding in death? (laughs) God bless you. Have a nice week. John doesn't mess around. When he deals with these false teachers, it's black and white, and he's going to lay it out. And I think some almost 2,000 years later, the need for John's teaching to be heard and received and applied today is as great as it ever was. There's all sorts of ingenious distortions of biblical Christianity out there. Biblical behavior is under attack, uh, not only outside the church and the culture, but also inside the church. Such matters as sexuality are the sanctity of human life. And we can laugh at all of the fantastic speculation of the Gnostics. But isn't even in our culture the heresy of the supremacy of knowledge as alive as it ever was? Do we not need to learn from John that it is man's sinful rebellion against God that's our chief problem, not our ignorance? Isn't it still true that the light without the love is darkness? You know, we're not lacking in uh, contemporary teachers today who will claim to build on the apostolic foundation of the the word given to us by the apostles and prophets, they want to take Christians on to deeper truths, beyond Scripture. And adding to Scripture has probably caused more heresy and division in the church than subtracting from the Bible ever did. The gospel and is the root of so many errors. And John's going to help us to resist that fashion that sees the revelation of God in Scripture as dated, as old-fashioned, as inadequate. And he's going to let us see that what Scripture said, it still says, and what Scripture says, God says. And as we will see as we go through this, the errors of John's day are actually just an accommodation of the Christian faith to the prevailing ideas of the secular culture. Glad that's not happening anymore. In every generation, the church is challenged by the world, either to confront the world or to absorb its culture. 
As Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God, uh, what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And today we're in danger of reflecting the philosophy of our society and not challenging it. And that's why we so often base our judgment and conduct on our feelings and our experiences rather than on God's revealed truth. And it's why we're conditioned uh, by various subjective viewpoints concerned about uh, what people think or what they're going to say rather than by the objective, unchanging realities of God and His Word. And the Apostle John doesn't attempt a detailed critique of the error He says there's no need to do that. He proclaims the truth in a characteristic confidence that where the truth is declared and believed, error will be undermined and will ultimately collapse. And we are living, I think, in a day and age where we need that truth far more than we realize. So let's dive into this book, into this text, and see what it says. We're going to start in verse 1. And the message is real. That's the first blank there in your outline. I got all the blanks in, didn't I? They're there. Sometimes I forget. The message is real. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Now, the opening of the letter here, without any formal preliminaries, you know, he doesn't say, I, John, you know, the last living apostle, write to you, the church in Asia Minor, and uh, we always pray for you, grace and peace to you, love you guys. You know, Paul starts a lot of his letters that way. That which from the beginning, not even, hello, how are you? Wish you were here. They're about to send him in exile to Patmos. He probably doesn't wish they were there. But this opening is as startling as it is difficult. In the original Greek, the object is placed first and it's expanded by a number of clauses until we finally get to the verb we proclaim in verse 3. And because this is so difficult to understand, most modern English versions, uh, like the NIV and some others, Uh, anticipate the verb, they take it from verse 3 and they insert it into verse 1. And a lot of other versions just try to chop it up, divide it into more manageable units. It's very difficult. And what does all that mean? It means clearly then to the Apostle John, the theme is more important than the telling. So he places the theme first for emphasis. But just what is this word of life which was there from the beginning. The phrase echoes the start of the Gospel of John. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And beyond that, you can go all the way back to the very first uh, verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Go back as far as you will in your imagination, says Genesis, before anything that exists came into being, and you will find God, the eternal being. And you can go back to that same point, says John in his gospel, and you'll find Jesus Christ with God because he was God before anything was created. 
And John's concern in this letter is to declare that the Word, which was made flesh, is the same eternal Son of the Father who is before all time and who is the agent of all creation. The Word of life didn't merely come into existence at Bethlehem. He'd already existed from the very beginning with the Father, he'll tell us in verse 2. And it's this everlasting Word that became the human Jesus. There's no separation between the two. Often, we'll refer to Jesus Christ as the living Word or the Word incarnate. And we'll refer to the Bible as the written Word. What does all this mean? Simply put, John wants you to understand that the message, the Word of life, is realized only in the person who is the Word of life. In other words, the message of Christ can't be understood apart from Christ himself. Look at how John explains this. First, he says there's four witches here. Witches as in, you know, witch, not as in bad, evil person who flies on a broom. Anytime you see this kind of repetition, it's a clue that there's something important here. It's one of the keys to understanding the Bible is look for repetition when you read it. And so first he says, which we have heard. The we here are the apostles, the witnesses and messengers uh, of Christ. And they've heard a message from a messenger. Except in this case, Jesus is both the messenger and the message. With something that had happened was still having an impact in John's life. Second, he says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon. John physically saw the events we read of in the Gospels with his own eyes. He personally saw God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And John is declaring his eyewitness testimony to combat those who are claiming that Jesus is divine, but not human. Many years have passed since Christ uh, walked on the earth. And over that time, probably some 60 years later, approximately, John's carefully examined the life, person, words, and works of Jesus He saw Jesus when he was hanging naked on a cross, suffering for sin. He saw Jesus when he was resurrected from the dead. And he saw Jesus when he ascended into heaven. He is the last eyewitness. And not only did he see him finally, he says, and have touched with our hands. He touched Jesus the man. He ate of the bread and uh, handled the cup. He leaned on him during the Last Supper. And he wants them and us to know that the person is real. Verse 2, the person is real. says, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Twice in this verse, John says, the life was made manifest. The life of God, Jesus Christ, was manifested or made known, made visible, made clear To us, the eternal uh, second person of the Trinity is the life who became flesh and dwelt among us as a man. Great theologian B.B. Warfield uh, wrote about this. The glory of the incarnation is that presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man, one who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is, yet without sin. One on whose almighty arm we can rest and to whose human sympathy 
we can appeal. Furthermore, John says that Jesus was with the Father. And again, John wants us to know that Jesus is both God and man. The Greek grammar used here suggests that Jesus, as God the Son, was continuously existing in an intimate, face-to-face relationship with God the Father before, during, and after the Incarnation. Jesus has existed eternally with the Father. And John is saying, and he wants us to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the person on whom hangs all of Christianity, Jesus Christ, the Eternal One, is real. I testify to that. It's my business to proclaim it. And so now John has stated that uh, the message is real and the person is real. And he gets on with the purpose of his letter, which is that the fellowship is real. Verse 3, the fellowship is real. He says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The word translated fellowship here is koinonia. It means participation, partaking, partnership. All those words are used in translating it. In Luke chapter 5, verse 10, James, John, and Peter are said to be partners in the fishing business. uses the same word there. Partners. Second Peter 1 4 says Christians have become partakers, same word again, of the divine nature, meaning we get to participate in a personal relationship with God Himself. This concept of fellowship forms the basis for the argument of the rest of the book of First John. True Christians manifest the character of God with whom they have real fellowship. How? through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only do we have fellowship, but John says fellowship with us, with those of us who have truly placed our faith in Christ. And therefore, you also have fellowship. You have the same kind of fellowship that we have uh, with God, he says. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Pretty much what Jesus told us uh, back in John 17. This is eternal life that they know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So John is encouraging us with these words that the message about Christ is real and the person of Christ is real and our fellowship with Christ is real. And because all that's true, then the joy is real. Verse 4, the joy is real. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made or may be complete. Comes to the obvious conclusion that if the gospel is true and Christ is real and fellowship is genuine, then the joy is real as well. It's not a forced joyfulness, but a real deep down, smiling on the inside, authentic joy. John knew that the consummation of his joy, the ultimate goal and fulfillment of his joy, would come from sharing this good news of the reality of Jesus with his friends, with his beloved children in the faith. In fact, near the end of these letters, we'll read in uh, 3 John, uh, verse 4, it only has one chapter, it says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy 
than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And he's writing about all the people in the churches. You know, two years ago, uh, in the summer of 2006, USA Today, a newspaper reported a study which found that 25% of Americans, what's that, about 75, 80 million people? It's a fair number. 25% of Americans have no friend to confide in, not even one close friend. They'd repeated a study that was done back in 1985, and it found then uh, Americans with no close friends were at 10%. 20 years later, 25%. And according to this study done by the University of Chicago. More people are lonely than ever before. So I wonder, how many of us here this morning feel isolated, feel lonely, even in a big group of people? I was struck, you know, uh, some of you know I, I like to listen to the classic rock station. And uh, there's that song, Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. Some of you are old enough to remember that. But it has these weird lyrics in it. Eleanor Rigby wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. And you get this image of Eleanor leaving the privacy of her home, stops at the door where there's a jar holding her best public face, and she puts it on and walks out. If you think about that, somehow we understand that. We understand when people put on their best public face. When they've had a terrible week and life is falling apart and they walk into church and say, Fine, thanks, and you? And the reality is, I'm doing terrible. Life is horrible. Everything just you know, went to pot and I'm miserable and mad and upset. Doing great. How are you? Good to see you. Why do we falsify ourselves? Now, I don't want you to all walk in next week and say, oh, man, it's just horrible, you know. So don't overdo it. But it deepens our isolation. It makes us even more lonely. And the gospel explains why ever since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we've been hiding from God. Christ came down from heaven out of compassion for people like us. He came down to lure us out of hiding, to persuade us that we have a friend in him. He came down as one of us to bring us back to God. That's what John's talking about. 2,000 years ago, God took on human nature in the birth of Jesus. He moved among us as our best friend. John's saying he is real. His message is real. His fellowship with us is real. And the joy that brings us is real. So therefore, we, got some, we, we have some questions we have to answer. I've got three questions here. One, are you still hiding? Jesus wants to have fellowship with you. 
The last thing he wants you to do is to hide from him or to remain isolated from him or try to pretend to be someone or something other than what you really are. A sinner who desperately needs a savior. Are you still hiding? Second, do you believe him? The message of Christ is true. The grace of Christ is real. Do you believe what he says? Do you believe what he promises? In a few moments during uh, communion, we're going to profess our faith together using an old creed. But you know what you need to believe in, in order to say it, don't you? I mean, do you believe that God the Son came from heaven, took on human form, and died to pay the penalty for the sin by which we've offended a holy God? And he rose from the grave three days later, victorious over death, and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven. At some point, you either believe that or you don't. Do you believe him? And third, do you live like it? Are you growing in faith? Are you growing in holiness? Are you growing in love? You know, at the beginning of this message, I said that the way to tell if someone is a false teacher is by looking at his life and teaching to see if he's a man of faith, if he's a man of holiness, if he's a man of love. And that applies to all people, uh, man, woman, and child. Do the words faith, holiness, and love describe your life? My guess is that none of us here this morning think those words describe us enough. That in each one of those areas, faith, what we really believe, and holiness, how we really live, and love, how we really relate to each other, we, do, we all could be doing way better than we are. Amen? John is writing this book to make sure that you don't merely profess the faith, but that you actually possess the faith. And he wants you to be able to tell the difference. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this book of 1 John. Thank you that we have the privilege of hearing again from John the Elder, the last apostle. And thank you that he tells us things that we so desperately need to hear about truth and about Christ and about the kind of relationship that we can have. Lord, I pray that you would bring those truths to reality in each of our lives this day, this week, and over this Uh, coming months as we look into this book. Make it real for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.